0: Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an award winning author, two time Emmy Award winning news producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Teresa Stovall, author of Swirl Girl Coming of Race in the USA. Teresa Stovall was born a jazz baby in Seattle, Washington when much of the country was racially segregated and her parents' marriage was illegal in 16 states. An author from the age of seven, Teresa has written several poems, books, and plays on various topics, including racial identity and the impact of colorism on people of color. Her books include A Love Supreme, Real Life Stories of Black Love, the novel The Hot Spot* in a children's book entitled The Buffalo Soldiers. Teresa is an award-winning journalist whose works have been featured in USA Weekend, The Courier Post, The Montclair Times in New Jersey, The Defenders Online, and several other platforms. An official super fan of the own television series, Queen Sugar, Teresa is the proud mother of a son and daughter. She lives in Atlanta and likes to stir things up on social media. In our conversation, we discuss the legacy of passing, going from indie to mainstream, and then back to Indian publishing, how a comment from President Obama helped influence her to write her memoir, and that one time, the legendary Ruby Dee called her up on the house phone. Black and published family, let's get into this conversation. All right, so, Teresa, thank you so much for joining me today on Black and Published. I always like to start the interview with this first question, and it is, when did you know that you were a writer?
1: Thank you so much for having me, Nikisha. I'm really happy to be here. and really grateful for this opportunity. I first knew I was a writer at seven years old. So what happened was it was, I'm from Seattle, Washington, and it was autumn, probably September, October. And my mother, brother, and I were on our back porch. And I, when well, my mother was busy finding her keys and opening the door, um, I saw this huge, almost pulsating orange moon. And I said, Mom, look at that moon. And she glanced at it and said, oh, yes, honey, that's a harvest moon. And I literally stood there at seven years old on the back porch and improvised a poem about the harvest moon. It winked at me. It winked at me, a wink that only I could see. It shines so bright, it shines so clear that I could never doubt or fear. It shined throughout the night. That was my first poem, (laughs) Harvest Moon. I don't even know where it came from, what inspired me. I mean, you know, like most writers, I was an avid reader as a child, an early reader. I started about four years old and an avid reader, but I'd never even thought about writing. And she looked at me and said, that's pretty good. Let's hurry up and go write it down. (laughs) So that was really, the. and and then after that, I just kind of felt what I call the inner click of intuition, maybe, or guidance from the other side. And at that point, I started referring to myself as a writer. And so when I was a little girl, people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, well, I am a writer.
0: Wow. So Seven, you're writing poems and declaring out loud that you were a writer. So did that stick with you as you grew up and went to college and all of that?
1: Absolutely. It stuck with me. I really have to credit my mother, even her first, you know, um, spontaneous response to me just, you know, reciting a poem um, on the back porch one night when she was busy trying to hustle us in the house. You know, she was supportive. She was encouraging. Um, As I got older, she would proofread my work. She was a great proofreader. She would offer her opinion on my work. But she always took me seriously. In fact, she told me that I had to learn to type. This was on a manual typewriter because I'm old. I had to learn to take shorthand. All these things she would say, well, if you're going to be a writer, you're going to need to know to do these things. She also, however, made sure I knew that I would probably need to have a quote unquote day job. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was making my fortune as a scribe. So, you know, I would say that early parental support and taking me seriously was, is a huge deal. And I want to share one other story that was really meaningful. I was probably 10 or 11 years old and I had many favorite writers and authors. And one of them was the legendary Gwendolyn Brooks, African-American writer, author, poet from Chicago. And I don't remember the specifics, but she came to Seattle and I went to go see her. Mom took me to go see her. And I had typed up because by then I could type all my little poems and put them in a binder. And I gave them to her and um, I asked her, if she could please read them and give me her thoughts. (laughs) She was my idol. So I'm sure I stuttered and was sweating and everything. And God bless Gwendolyn Brooks. She did, whether she actually read it or not. She she very graciously smiled and she said lovely things and she took my work. And then later on through the mail, she sent me a lovely letter of encouragement. I wish I still had that letter. Um, Oh, that's an awesome story. Right. And so, I mean, you know, that is just on top of my mother's ongoing support. She, like I said, she was at the top of my list of of literary idols as a young girl. And so for her to give me that, that warm reception, that positive affirmation, that welcoming embrace, basically, you couldn't tell me anything after that.
0: Yeah. Mama says it's okay. I was was concerned. (laughs) Right. Yeah. So like what, so what then did you do for your day job while you were making (laughs) your career as a writer? So
1: day job. So my mother was what was then called a secretary, what now would be called an administrative assistant. And, you know, for someone, she was born in the 1920s, grew up in the depression. So for someone in her generation, that was a big deal. And she was also divorced and a single parent of two biracial kids. So She was a pioneer in a lot of different ways, very independent, very strong. Um, And so she was, again, But from a working class background, Jewish from a working class background. And so and just, again, parents who grew up in the Depression, you were like, the greatest thing you could aspire to was a steady job with benefits. Like that was the ultimate. Okay, for us baby boomers, that for most, at least working class. And nobody on either side of my family had been to college. I was considered smart, tagged, gifted early on, but nobody ever said a word about college to me. Like it just wasn't even a conversation ever, even when I did really well in school. So what my mother was like, you have to learn to type, you have to know how to take shorthand in her mind. A smart thing for me to do, since we weren't really considering college or anything, was that I too could become a secretary, or what's now an administrative assistant, or get a nice, steady office job, and then do my writing on the side? What I did, that I also hated it with a passion, and was lucky enough—a um, whole story about in the nineteen early nineteen seventies how um, colleges and universities were starting what's now known as affirmative action to recruit at risk. students of color into their, yes, into their beautiful campuses. And thanks to a wonderful um, African-American community activist in Seattle, Larry Gossett, um, he literally tricked me into going to college. It's a whole story. It's outlined in my memoir. And so I ended up at the University of Washington and I went to be, I went to college to learn how to make movies. So I was a film TV major. And I went to two years to the University of Washington and two years to A little, a lesser-known school, but a very special place called the Evergreen State College, and I was at the Tacoma campus. And I'm really honored to say I'm currently an author in residence there. Um, But that was a really great is a really great college because it is experiential, non-traditional. They don't emphasize grades and tests. It's more, much more like a graduate school where the students have a say in what they want to learn, and it's experiential learning. And so I was able to transfer to that, and. What I ended up doing job-wise was really public relations, excuse me, public relations marketing, because I could write. I understood communications. I understood different kinds of media. And I was interested in multimedia fluency in the 1970s when it wasn't cute or trendy and I lost jobs because of it. I I had uh, offers like TV stations and newspapers. But they said, well, do you want to be print or broadcast? And I said, I want to do it all. And literally, they said to me, that's not possible. You have to decide. And I said, well, I'm not going to decide. So I was able to do well in my career because I was somewhat unusual in that I was fluent at the time. This is the olden days before the internet. I was fluent in print. I was fluent in television. I was fluent in radio, all those different mediums. Very few people were, and certainly very few women of color were at that time. Now, of course, you have to be, all that and more.
0: Wow. Um, So from, I guess, executive, administrative assistant, college for film school, PR, marketing, executive, when did the writing of the first book come in? Because you (laughs) were doing a lot. (laughs) That's true. That is very true. Thank you. Thank you,
1: Nakisha. Toni Morrison, when she was an editor, and I think a single mother of, of I think, two sons, um, she said something a long time ago that that branded itself on my brain and that I could completely relate to, which is that you write around the edges of your life or your day, like you get up early or you go to bed, stay up late, or you, you know, I remember Terry McMillan famously writing one of her first books while she was working also an office job on what was then a word processor. And when she she would and I did this too, you know you do di- you do your work real fast, and then you'd have the machine to kind of surreptitiously try to work on your own stuff, right? All those little things. Um, the first book was the very first book was a book of my poetry. I was about nineteen twenty ish, and I just gathered up some of my poems and self published them and got five hundred copies printed and sold them throughout the city. People knew me or wanted to be supportive, so that was very encouraging. Then it was you know, probably about, I don't know, um, several years later, and I co-wrote a book on homeopathic medicine, which is a natural form of, of healthcare that really changed my life. And it wasn't really designed for a mass audience. And I co-wrote it with a friend of my mother's who would also have life-changing experiences with homeopathic medicine. So that was my first book called Catching Good Health, just explaining homeopathic medicine to people. We didn't have medical backgrounds and the history of it and how it could help them. And then it was a few more years to my next book, which was a contract book on the Buffalo soldiers, a children's, I would say, middle grade, middle school book. So I still hadn't done anything with just my name on it that I could really say, hey, I wrote a book. The first major book to be published, I co-wrote with my then husband, um, Calvin Stovall, and it was... Um, the first major book it was published by Time Warner in the year 2000, and it was a a gathering of stories of black married couples. So it's titled "A Love Supreme: Real Life Stories of Black Love." We're really blessed because if you look really closely, Ruby D did the foreword for us. Yes, let's Ruby marry Dee Ruby did D. the foreword, and the story behind that was at this at the time. Of course, if you want to talk about black love and marriage, you had to start with and circle back to Ossie Davis and Ruby D. And through friends, I managed to reach her and request that we interview her for the book. And she was so gracious. She called me on the phone. I remember I was washing the kitchen floor. I had two little kids, like infant and toddler. And um, and she's like, this is Ruby D. And of course I had to not faint. And um, she apologized and said, well, we can't do an interview because we have our own book coming out about our relationship." So I think it's called Aussie and uh, Ruby in our life together, in this life together. And it was coming out soon. She said, But would it be okay if I wrote the foreword? I'm like, okay, if you wrote the forward. Like I felt like I had just won the Powerball and the Mega Millions that day, right? That was just such an incredible blessing and of course a beautiful job. So that was the first major book, right? That was the first major book. And that was. Thanks to the doors that Terry McMillan had opened in the early nineties with the incredible success of Waiting to Exhale, many of us who already had writing backgrounds could fairly easily get book deals, fairly easily. It wasn't necessarily a given or a piece of cake. You know, you had to know what you were doing and have an agent and know how to put together an idea, pitch it and then deliver it. But she really did fling the gates open for many 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 black authors and for that we are forever grateful and happy so that was the first book and then i went on to write i wrote a novel the hot spot this is a, a reader's copy but I, the hot spot which is just fun it was basically what you would call lit back then and It was first published in hardcover by BET Books. They, you know, it was when Chicklet, Bridget Jones' Diary, Sex in the City was really just coming up,
0: yeah. and I
1: wanted to get in on the bandwagon with urban Chicklet. So I had an amazing opportunity. The phenomenal, one of my favorite authors, um, Donna Hill, was the editor for this for this series, and so she she invited me in, and it was just really a hoot. And so that was a, fe- a great experience. And then I worked with a fellow sister, Tracy Price, a fellow author, I'm sorry, sister friend, Tracy Price Thompson. We did three anthologies together. She was um, having her novels published at the time. We were both kind of impatient and wanted to just do all the cool things you could do, you know, as a new Black author. So we did a short story anthology called Proverbs for the People. And this was really amazing. It was really amazing because I learned how to write fiction working on this with Tracy, and we had fifty-four authors. Some were New York Times best-selling authors. You can see Prokleg, Omar Tyree, Margaret Johnson Hodge, Travis Hunter, all those great folks, Mm -hmm. and some of whom have become close friends. And at the same time, we had Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie in there. She was writing under the name Amanda Ngozi Adichie. Hers is the first story because. 54 authors listed alphabetically by last name. And we had a high school student who was like 15 and had never written anything that had been published. So it's a great collection of very diverse voices. And the the unifying thread was that each story had to be based on a proverb that was either African, African African-American, or biblical. So that's why it's called Proverbs for the People. And that was a lot of fun. And somebody just messaged me today that this book is their bible, and, just, and this book came out, you know, many years ago. But it really is a wonderful book. I mean, my story is 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 good. Tracy's story is great. She's an amazing writer. But there's so many stories by names who are now much more well known, and some who aren't known at all. But the the writing is amazing. So this was really working on this taught me how to write fiction. So it was also a masterclass for me. I,
0: I gotta back up because. One, you self-published your poetry at 19. What year was that?
1: (laughs) 19. I think I was 19. Maybe I was older. It was in the late 70s. So maybe I was in my 20s. Late 70s. Early 20s.
0: I think Nikki Giovanni says that she started self-publishing her own work. So, I mean, it, it wasn't uncommon to self-publish, but really, I don't think about self-publishing really being in existence then. So it's it's like funny that you said that, that you self-published then in the late 70s. And then your first, I guess, major book, uh, A Love Supreme, comes out in 2000 in that wave of um, Black authors who kind of got on, thanks to all the work of Terry McMillan and her novels in the early 90s. So what are you? what is your opinion now of the publishing landscape where those doors that seem to have flung open between like 96 and I'll be generous and say 06 have kind of been shut?
1: That's that's a good, that's a fabulous question. Fabulous question. And I've come kind of full circle. So publishing landscape, especially for black uh, authors and readers, especially for black authors, so what's interesting as it, so yes, I'd self-published, I also self-published back then because it was poetry. And even then, and I grew up, like I literally grew up subscribing to writer. When you said when I say I took myself seriously, I was a kid and I was like, for my birthday, I want a subscription to writer's digest. You know, like I would read writers digest religiously. You know, like I was, you know, I was very focused. But um, so I kind of had a sense that poetry was not the easiest thing to get published. And also at that time, up until Terry McMillan, this is why we really cannot underestimate. And I'm so glad you're, you're um, centering her up until that waiting to exhale deal that knocked us all on our, on our behinds um, while celebrating it. You know, there were only a few major black books a year. Like growing up, you know, that we would wait, we would wait for an Alice Walker. We would wait for a, for a Toni Morrison. We would wait for a Maya Angelou. We would wait for that book, a Gwendolyn Brooks, a whoever, right? And it would be a while, an Entesake Shange. It would be a while. Like, we'd be hungry and thirsty and starving and parched. And, you know, of course we were going to buy it. Michelle Michelle Wallace's groundbreaking books. You know, of course we were going to buy those books. Of course we were going to just consume them greedily and then process them with everybody we could think of. Right. But so that's what, what happened was, you know, we we call the Renaissance in the the early nineties, thanks to Terry McMillan. So it was, it was hard to get, just being black, you know, it was, it was a tough uphill climb just to get a publishing deal. And I think we also have to acknowledge two pioneering legends, literary agents, black women, uh, Faith Davis and Marie Brown. Okay. They were the, grandoms. they were the queen mothers. They were literary agents before the Terry McMillan fueled Renaissance, and they really opened a lot of the doors. And of course, Toni Morrison, having been when she was an editor, she brought in many, many, many black authors as well. So you can we can see the need for. Her. But now, even now, the publishing book publishing mainstream industry is not diverse. What's changed, Makisha? What's 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 beautiful? and daunting at the same time is that like every other form of media pu- book publishing is in flux and has been changed by the digital world by the fact that we're now in the digital information age and we're out of the industrial age and so what's happened with that is that number one there are still there are more black books being published by mainstream publishers although it's still not anywhere near adequate. And it's still not, I mean, you know, as the major publishing houses gobble each other up. So once we were five and now there are four and who knows in 10 years. I mean, yeah, right? You know, so those of us who are in mainstream publishing or have been or want to be, you're seeing the field narrow. It's not widening. It's narrowing, right? And so and even as you know Black Lives Matter hashtag and 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 you know publishing so white and all those things kinds of things are happening a survey came out that only a tiny percentage of the books published in the United States I believe it is every year are from authors of color that's not just even specifically black so it's not impossible to get a book deal it's still an uphill climb it's still a gamble and it's harder it's harder for me and I've been published traditionally several times but it's still harder because the field is narrower you're taking fewer risks and the industry is in flux so, The great news in a lot of ways is that the barriers to entry are gone. Just like I can take my iPhone and shoot a movie. Shoot and edit a movie and throw it up on YouTube or Vimeo, right? Um, Or maybe get an HBO deal. I mean, who knows? But the barriers to entry are gone. The barriers to entry that people like me grew up with are gone. So you can, it's now called independent publishing. And what's gone is the stigma. So it used to be with self-publishing was kind of like, yeah, you, well, you weren't good enough to get a real deal, so you're just gonna throw it out there yourself. I mean, it really was a stigma. It doesn't mean the work wasn't as good, but you had that barrier to get over, right? You were perceived as less than. Nowadays, being an independent author is not seen as much different than being an independent musician, visual artist, filmmaker, etc. So much of the stigma is gone. The barriers to entry are gone. The good news is that there are now a bajillion, <laughs> I mean, you know, anybody who's any got any kind of savvy and maybe a few dollars can get a book out and it doesn't even cost that much to get an ebook out and ebooks are also huge, right? And um, distribution into bookstores isn't the same make or break that it used to be because how many people buy books from bookstores? And, and that's pre-pandemic. We're not even talking pandemic, pre-pandemic. People would ask me and I'd say, well, I might go to a bookstore once or twice a year. But, and you know, Amazon has ruined all of us. So, you know, you can think about a book and have it ordered in 30 seconds. I mean, you know, one click, ah. So everything is changing. So independent publishing, and you have a lot of people like me who've been traditionally published who are trying out independent publishing. So I independently published my latest book, my memoir, Swirl Girl, Coming of Race in the USA, looked into traditional publishing, worked with a literary Mm -hmm. agent and she sent it out and we got responses. And what was interesting was this was about five years ago. It took me five years to write it. We sent out a proposal sample chapters because A, it's not fiction. B, I've been published before. And we got some good responses, we got some serious interest, but what some people don't know is that in many cases in traditional publishing, the ultimate decisions to for a publishing company to give you a contract are made by the marketing department. And so they were like, we like it, but we don't know what to do with it. And that's because it's not Tragic Mulatto, right? And I knew that the risk was there. I was always prepared to publish it independently. But I thought, well, you know, if somebody's interested let's see what happens. So, um, you know, I understood that I understood that a big, big house came back and said, we can do it. If you make it fiction. I said, it's my life story. I'm not making it fiction. How can I promote mm-hmm. that? You know, how can I go on a show like this and talk about this book and say, well, I had to publish it as fiction, but really <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it just didn't feel right. So, um, and it wasn't in line with my values. So independent publishing is amazing. And that, like I said, barriers to entry are gone. Anybody can publish a book. Now there's pluses and minuses to that. As a reader, you know, you don't, the gatekeepers aren't there. So it can be harder to assume the quality of what I call the rigorous, traditionally published editorial process. They're going to make sure your book looks as good as it can because their name is on it. Their brand is, is impacted and they're the ones making the money. You might get part of the money if you really have a good agent and a good deal, but they're, they're the ones going out on the line there. So they're going to, they do have a wonderful rigorous editing proofreading process that if you're publishing independently and you have to pay people to do that, that gets much more complicated and, and the, and the standards aren't consistent necessarily. I don't know what to expect. So, you know, there's pluses and minuses. Um, I know that's a long answer, but so independent publishing now is is a viable option for just about anybody. And that's beautiful. Then, but the, there's another really huge, huge challenge. And one of the biggest misperceptions, Nikisha, about being traditionally published is that they will market your book for you. Mm-hmm. And this is true a, a while ago. I mean, this has been true for a while. This isn't new. But mostly, when I do book coaching or when I'm just talking to aspiring authors, I'll say, Well, what are your goals? You know, I want to be traditionally published. And I'll say, Why? You know, there's pros and cons to traditional, there's pros and cons to independent. Um, it just, to me, depends on what kind of book you're writing, what your expectations and goals are for this book. And a lot of people will say, Well, because I just want to write, and, you know, if they're pub, they'll market it. And I'm like, No, they won't market it. You have to do. There's an exception. If you're a Terry McMillan or a Walter Mosley or somebody like that or you you would you debut at number 1 on the New York Times bestseller list like a lot of these fabulous brilliant young black authors who are out now, that's great. But that's still that's like being a really good high school athlete. You got less chances than than they do of going pro of getting published traditionally, okay? So, you could be amazing and not get a publishing deal. And the fact that you get a publishing deal is not a reflection of you or your work. It's a reflection of a narrowing marketplace and just the fact that, you know, so what, so I know you've heard of book proposals. You're familiar with book proposals. So a book proposal is a business and marketing plan for a book. It is not a literary document. They are not assessing your talent. They are assessing, it's like Shark Tank on paper. Think of it like Shark Tank on paper. That's what a book proposal is. They're looking at that at the publishing house. So to to gauge your understanding as an author of where your book fits in the marketplace, its marketability, where it fits, and just how much work you're going to do to sell it. That's what a book proposal is about. Not the literary merits and your phenomenal writing ability. No, 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 no. <laughs> you know or what an amazing storyteller you are it's a business and marketing plan it is shark tank on paper and so
0: is no, it shark tank on paper i think that so i was probably one of the ones you would have been talking to because i initially wanted to be traditionally published um just because i feel like that stigma is still there and i talked about this on a podcast the other day but that I think for you because you have been traditionally published choosing to go indie is a more easy is a more viable option but for those who are black and are writers who don't have a a way to get into that mainstream publishing arm and don't have the experience or an MFA or a fellowship or a workshop behind them then self-publishing still very much is stigmatized against you, like, oh, well, you couldn't sell it, so obviously it must not be good. I even had a reviewer write, in the review of my debut novel, she was like, you know, we tr- we really don't, I don't ever review self-published books, because they tend to not be good, and the only reason I'm reviewing this one is because I met the author, she gave it to me, and I read it, and I liked it, and so now I'm going to review it, so I still find it to be that that uphill battle, and that it, it it's just it's different strokes for different folks. But I mean, and that was that was part of the reason why I could not be traditionally published. The the responses I got were, we don't know how to sell it. marketing, <laughs> We don't know what to do with it. And only because of my TV background, was I able to leverage my friendships with people in television, and say, hey, can I come on your show? Hey, can I do this? And I would I was still working when I wrote my book. I would drive Four or five hours to South or North to go do a five minute television interview to promote my book, only because it's not that I wanted that many people to see it in the market on television, but that I could take the clip and put it on social media and make it look like I was doing something. So, I mean, I think that barrier to entry is still there. But to go from Time Warner and A Love Supreme with the forward by the incomparable Ruby D to writing Swirl Girl and doing your proposal and then deciding to go indie with Alchemy Media Publishing, what was that experience like? That's a great question. Can I address what you said before? Because what you just said
1: is incredibly important, Mm -hmm. really brilliant and incredibly important. By the way, I want to read your book. So um, you're right. And thank you for clarifying and correcting me. Thank you very much. The barriers to entry that exist for independent publishing, and I'm fighting with them right now with Squirrel Girl. You're absolutely correct. I think what I meant is there are fewer barriers between you and a reader because you have social media and other ways to what if you if you know how to reach your reader. But you're absolutely correct, though, and I want to really thank you for that clarification, Nikisha. The barriers to entry to getting reviewed, right? Anybody but a reader on Amazon. Um, or included, you know, sold in a bookstore, even online. And so you're right, the barriers, there are still barriers to the places where traditionally published books are pretty much the rule. You're absolutely right. And thank you for that clarification. I thank you very much for that. That's really true. Um, That's true, because I'm encountering that right now. So what you do as an independent author any kind of author with marketing, ironically, even if you get traditionally published, then I'll answer your question, your very other very good question. Um, Again, if you're responsible for the marketing, what that ultimately means is defining as narrowly as possible. And this is where my decades of marketing experience comes in handy. Defining as narrowly and specifically as possible your reader. The beauty of today's world is with enough work and attention and networking, which obviously you're very good at. and All of us authors have to get good at. You can then find ways to connect with those readers directly or indirectly, even, even if you can't get past the gatekeepers, but you hustled, you got past that, that gatekeeper reviewer. You made that reviewer make an exception and the quality of your work and of however you approach them made them make an exception. Not everybody's going to be able to do that. You're right, but um, I love that story, and I'm going to let it inspire me. You know, to try to get one of those mainstreamish reviews, right?
0: But I even did that with my most recent novel, Beyond Bourbon Street, that came out last August. And so I, I I've left the t- television industry, but I still know a lot of people in it. And so one, a friend of mine had worked at the Atlanta Journal Constitution. She was now in DC, and I was like, Hey, Tia. Um, who's the book book editor or whatever assignment manager at AJC? She gave me the email and all the folks. I sent them an email and it basically came back like, hey, we don't do self-published books, but if you have a publisher, they should send it to us, which let me know that, okay, for me as a publisher, I could send the office under my company. I could send their books to the AJC and write the form letter and say, hey, this is such and such ready for review, yada, yada, yada. But if I were to do it for myself because I am the author and the publisher, it's a no. And I'm just like, okay, it's a thing, but it's, it's a constant battle I find. I, I, I told this story before that, you know, I had someone from the New York Times review of books reach out to me because she had seen my book, she had seen a review, And, but then she wanted me to buy an ad in the paper instead of getting it reviewed. And I was just like, so you can come and ask me for $1,400 for like a a little bitty ad in the paper, but (laughs) I can't get to the next step to find the person that can review the book. Like that, that's the barrier that I'm finding now. So you're right. You're, you're
1: absolutely right. That is profound. That is very, very profound. And that's also ironic and i love how you broke it down you could send someone else's book that you publish, but if your name is on i mean maybe you need to use an alias or get you know hire a virtual assistant or something right but you're right i mean there's you know we're we're always looking for ways to break through and then obviously the quality of your work is such that people are willing to then right once they see it so you're right those do still exist so that's important but you but you can still you can more easily reach your readers Nowadays, because of social media, digital world, platforms, et cetera. Um, But you're right that people do need to consider that all of those end up falling into the the bucket of marketing your book. Once it's written and sometimes before it's written, you will be hustling that book. And one thing I tell authors um, is, you know, the marketing part is interesting. Um, I tell them that the writing of the book, even if it's really hard and unpleasant, right? Is the easiest part is, is, is dessert. And you get to eat dessert first. And that's when you're going to have the most fun, unless you are an, ex- an extrovert, which few of us are, <laughs> who just loves going out and da, 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 which few of us do. So, um, I said, that's, that's the fun. I said, the other 90% is marketing that book, selling that book, even if you're traditionally published, even if you've got a huge advance, those kinds of things, you're, they still expect you to do the, bu- the bulk of the work and you will still have to be hustling. If, even if they give you a push, it's going to be a short push, three months maybe, right? And that's if you're already a star or they deem you to be a potential star. So um, so you're right. I, so my journey went through, through, you know, from Time Warner to um, I worked with Random House, Simon & Schuster, you know, BET and Harlequin with, with, with the hotspot all positive experiences all really great experiences and everything else but like and so two of the more recent books were done with my sister friend co-editor Tracy Price Thompson and then two other authors so we had two books that were four novellas on healing issues of concern to black women one one was colorism and the other one was domestic violence and we, those were published by Simon and Schuster and there was a few years in between when they were published and in that few years the world changed. Social media became prominent and the four of us and three of the four of us had, were working in or have backgrounds in journalism when the books came out. Okay. Um, and the, when the first book, Other People's Skin came out, you know, we were on NPR, we were over here and we were over there. The second one came out a few years later on domestic violence and we got together to plan our marketing and we all said, you know, we don't know what we're doing anymore. Mm. It was this brand new thing for us called social media. And there was the, the you know, the the publisher did what they could, but they too were, were trying to adapt to this rapidly changing, often mysterious, perplexing, frustrating landscape of how do you get word out about it? What is the social? What?
0: you got to have a social media following. What's that? This was the mid 2000s. And that's another barrier to entry. Like if you don't have at least 10, 20, 100,000 followers on whatever platform is the most popular. I think right now, Instagram and Twitter still kind of reign supreme over TikTok. But who knows what it'll look like in 10 years. But if you don't have that follower count, who are you and who are you selling your book to? Because nobody's going to buy it. You have to, yeah, you have
1: to hustle. So I want to go back to your other really good question, though, if you don't mind. So I went through to traditional publishing, came to independent publishing. And um, what it was like was inspiring, terrifying. And I am on a constant learning curve, present tense and future tense. My, I believe my goal right now, Nikisha, as I plan my future books is to be a hybrid author. I said, I believe my goal. I'm working this out right now. So I'm sharing with you in real time, a hybrid author where some of my books are published independently and some are published traditionally. Now that's still iffy. I don't currently have a literary agent. My former literary agent who brought me up right and was just phenomenal work with, we kind of organically parted ways about a decade ago, organically amicably I just, yeah, it was just a time when I wasn't able to produce, I had family obligations. I couldn't really focus and produce books and, and, you know, I wasn't, it just wasn't, the vibe wasn't there, but she was amazing. She's brilliant. And she taught me so, so, so much. So I don't, I don't currently have an agent. I'm deciding whether I should look for an agent now. Um, My 27 year old daughter is a literary agent and an author. And most of the, many of the, yes, Mariah Stovall and many of the, Literary agents out there are my daughter's age. So <laughs> you know, so that's a little daunting. Not in a bad way, just like, okay, how do I get a millennial to even pay attention? You know. So um my, I'm exploring this as an entrepreneur. I call myself an authorpreneur, right? Which is what you are saying, right? yes. And a publisherpreneur, but um, I'm exploring it, and as you well know. This is a this is a non-ending learning curve, and I'm a baby boomer, so technology. I'll be learning the rest of my life. I take webinars constantly, right now on things such so basic as query letters, synopses. I've been doing these things my whole life, but that doesn't mean I can't get better. Okay, and you're right. You know, how do you build a following? How do you have a platform? Things that authors never had to think: what, what are my platforms going to be? Do I need a podcast? You know those kinds of things. Authors just had to write books and be good at it. And, and it's much harder now, but what it's been like, I have to tell you, it's exciting. Like I said, it's exciting. It's terrifying. It's exhilarating. It's daunting. (laughs) I think that what you, what you sign up for is not just writing books and hoping that people read them, like them and read them. It's, Committing to staying on this roller coaster because that's what it feels like, right? That is publishing today and probably for a long time to come.
0: Yes, in all the ways. Yes, I I, I had to take a beat because it it it's it's always changing. And it will and it will continue to change. And so it's affirming to hear you say that. I mean, you're going through this too, and you've been doing this for a very long time. So let's talk about Swirl Girl and going from, you know, marketing teams at major publishers not being able to sell it unless it was fiction to choosing Black owned Alchemy Media Publishing. Why was it important for you to write this memoir, tell your story and put it out no matter what? Thank you.
1: So Swirl Girl coming of race in the USA. If this book was really important for a couple reasons. It's a, it's a two, two or three part question, Nikisha. So thank you for asking. So I wrote my memoir, Swirl Girl, Coming of Race in the USA. The long time reason was that for a long, long time, I wanted as a mixed race person to find ways to reach and inspire younger mixed race people with stories, images, messages beyond the tragic. That's been a goal of mine ever since I was a child, teenager. And I didn't necessarily know how I was going to do that. But that's been a burning desire in me for a very long time. Sometimes it got backburnered by other things, by life, or just where I was in my identity journey. But it's always been there kind of dormant. Then it was activated. By uh, President Barack Obama, when in the first news conference a few days after his historic 2008 election, he was just kind of being relaxed and casual and talking about how he and our fabulous first lady, Michelle Obama, had promised their then very young daughters that if they won, they could have a dog. And so he was talking, just kind of riffing about a dog. And of course, you know, it was be more politically correct since they're Democrats to get a dog from a shelter, but that they couldn't because one of the daughters was allergic. So they had to get a special breed. And then he threw off an off the cuff comment. I just happened to be cleaning the kitchen at the time. It was like 11 o'clock. My kids were teenagers. They were in bed. I was, you know, cleaning up before I went to bed. I was sweeping the kitchen floor. Again, just like with we did kind of something interesting something about that. Can't and he you throws know, off the comment, um, you know, well, you know, shelter dogs are much like me. And I was like, Oh, why would I wait? Yes. I just, it, I, I detailed my book. I was not, like, I dropped the broom, the du- the dirt scattered the, my dog woke up. <laughs> I was like, you just, what? I gave you money. I voted for you. I put signs in my ear. You just, what, sir? Are you serious right now? Now, I do do believe I'm the only person who remembers that and was bothered by it. But because I would talk to my friends, they were like, oh, girl, you tripping, you know. But um, I was like, wait. But in that moment, in that moment, Keisha, in that moment, my ancestors descended upon me. I was working on a big project with some friends who put a lot of time and money into it. It was a big career defining da-da-da-da-da thing. And my ancestors put the brakes on and said, so you're upset about that little remark. What do you plan to do about it? I was like, you know, I really cannot with y'all right now. (laughs) Right? But needless to say, your ancestors don't really let you off the hook like that anymore than your parents would off for a chore that they've assigned you. So what ended up happening, it took a few years, I'm not gonna lie, it took a few years, (laughs) I had to kind of get past some other challenges just in life and childbearing and take care of my elderly mom and things like that. but um, I'm recovering from her passing. but that was, that was that was like not just a seed was planted, but you know somebody was watering it and weeding the, the garden at that point. And so that's what happened. And then the timing aligned and, and my life aligned and I was like, okay, maybe I need to do this memoir. And the ancestors were like, great, it's about time. And they just literally sat on me. They sat on me. This book, you know, they sat on me until this book was done. Like, so I would be, you know, I had a full-time job at the time, Nakisha. I'd be chilling, watching a little TV, Netflixing, whatever. They would literally be like, excuse me. Right. And I was like, what? I, you know, I've been working. It's Friday night. They were like, that's really nice. Why are you not at the keyboard? I was like, dang, y'all are rough. They were rough. The read the selfish reason I wrote it as is, is also because I believe in the power of story, be it fiction or nonfiction, doesn't matter. Proverb, fable, movie, I believe in story, like all of us who create stories. I believe in the power of story to reach people, to touch people, to change and move the world. And so I wrote Swirl Girl Coming of Race in the USA as a mixed-race memoir, Nikisha, sharing my story to invite others all others in all groups to do the same. I believe, especially as black people, mixed race people, people of color, however, whatever you know category we want to use, it is more essential than ever. And we finally have the means as we've never had before. I don't care if you write it, paint it, sculpt it, collage it, dance it, spoken word it, it, you know, I don't care. We all need to get ours because we all know what happens when we don't control our narratives. We all know what happens when we don't control our narratives, right? And so I am just, as you can tell, that's an obsession of mine. So one of the reasons I wrote it and shared it is as an invitation for you and everybody to find a way to share their own stories. I believe that is so essential.
0: I feel like we're kindred spirits because I often say... And like give talks and do stuff where, and I've, my first line is, "I believe in the power of story," and it's just you know stories can be universal. So I know all about the ancestors sitting on you and looking at you crazy until you get finished with an assignment. <laughs> so with all of that, relate. with all of that said, I'm going to read the description of Swirl Girl, and you get ready to read from the <laughs> section. I'm so excited to hear your reading. So. Swirl Girl, coming of race in the USA, reveals how a hard-headed, mixed-race, Black power flower child battles society and sometimes her closest loved ones to forge her identity on her own terms. As the USA undergoes its own racial growing pains from the 1968 riots after Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination to the historic 2008 election of the nation's first biracially Black president, Teresa Stovall challenges popular stereotypes and fights nonstop pressures to contort, disguise, or deny her uncomfortable truths. Teresa, take it away. Thank you
1: so much. Swirl Girl coming of race in the USA. So, Seattle, Washington, 1969. In ninth grade, I was being bused against my will to integrate schools in Seattle's faraway north end. The white students didn't want us there. I was happy when I made a new friend, a black girl who lived out there in the North End and didn't ride the bus with the rest of us. She was brown skinned and the kind of cute that would blossom into high cheekbone beauty. Like me, she had a few adolescent pimples and a couple extra pounds. What are you? She asked me. Mixed. Like with what? She talked like the kids in the North End. Black and Jewish. But you can't be Black and Jewish at the same time. Those two things just don't go together. Black people are Christian and go to church. Jewish people are Jewish and go to um, 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 synagogue, I said with a sigh. Yeah, see what I mean? They don't fit. So you can't be both. I wondered if growing up Black in such a white environment had damaged her brain. Then I thought about it. If none of the Black people she'd seen were Jewish... And none of the Jewish people were Black. Maybe it was hard for her to imagine one person being both. But I was a living, breathing example that it was possible. I stood to face her. I can be Black and Jewish because that's what I am. I said slowly, okay. You mean like Sammy Davis Jr.? Oh, hell no. Sammy Davis Jr., well, he's different. That's all. But we're both real. If you don't believe me, you can't be my friend. She stared at me for a very long minute, then nodded one time. And we never discussed my identity again. Another excerpt on the school bus. You know why white girls are better than black girls? One of the boys in the school bus asked loudly. My head snapped up from the book I was reading and the air tightened around me. A few girls argued, then other boys joined in. White girls are better because they're not as much trouble. And they do what you want with no backtalk. Yeah, another boy piped up. They know how to let a man be a man. The circle of boys kept making their claims as the girls accused them of disrespecting their mothers, sisters, grandmas, aunties, and cousins. Just when it looked like fists were about to fly, the bus supervisor walked up on them. Stop this foolishness right now, she demanded. The sparring students glared at each other across the aisle, their argument deflating under her stern gaze. I knew that refrain like the chorus of a hit song. Some of the Black boys in my neighborhood often went out of their way to inform us, Black girls and mixed girls alike, why we weren't as good as white girls, listing the same reasons the boys on the bus had given. I wondered where they learned this, what made them think this way why they were so quick to put down their own in favor of white girls. This was less than two years after Jim Crow laws had been struck down. And it hadn't been that long since black boys and men were lynched for even being suspected of looking at or speaking to a white woman. I wondered if any of the boys in the bus were trying to mack on the white girls in the school, or maybe they were captivated by the idea of white female flesh as forbidden fruit. Maybe they truly believed the white girls were superior. The whole thing made my head pound. 1970. My copper-toned father's attitude about my identity made me wonder if he regretted having made mixed children. I couldn't tell if he hated his own blackness or thought I'd be better off pretending that it didn't exist. Though he lived nearby, he stayed on the outskirts of our lives. While mom did double duty as a parent, he made it clear that he had no interest in playing a fatherly role. On holidays, Dad invited my brother Greg and me over for his delicious barbecue. On regular weekends, when he wasn't on the grill, he listened to good jazz, drank endless beer, drenched his food in hot sauce, and got on my nerves. One Saturday, we sat in his house watching news reports of the race riots blazing across America's inner cities with cries of black power coming from the screen. He stared impassively, nursing a beer. Desperate to forge a sense of connection with him, I gathered my nerve and reached out to share something close to my heart. I read this book by Malcolm X. He set his beer bottle down hard on the wooden coffee table. I don't need to read about that shit. I've lived it. He studied my face as though he'd never seen it before. What's your problem? Why are you trying so hard to be black? I'm not trying to be anything, I retorted. Why are you trying to deny your blackness? We locked eyes. Stop telling people you're black. You can be, he waved his arm around, anything you want. The way you look, you can tell people anything. I don't need to tell people I'm anything when I'm already something, I said. He looked sad. You're too young to understand what you're throwing away. That night, I laid awake asking God why he had to be my father, why the man who gave me my Blackness was telling me to throw it away, deny it, because he believed that living a lie was a better option. When he claimed I could be anything, I heard him suggesting he'd be cool with me changing my name, denying my ancestors, lying about every aspect of my being, and pretending he didn't even exist. He acted like Blackness was only for those whose bodies didn't give them other options a stain that I should avoid and escape for as long as I could pull it off. At the dawn of my teen years, as our nation rocked and rolled with shifting race relations, what I wanted most was for dad to hold up his end of the deal as the parent of mixed kids by standing tall and being proud of his identity, like mom was proud of hers. It was hard to respect him when he wouldn't even give me that.
0: Wow. So, do you think that your dad envied your ability to pass, even though you never did?
1: I do think so. And I learned later, that's very perceptive of you. And remember, this was back in the day, y'all. Oh, this was, you know, passing was not unusual. And um, yes, what I've since learned. So I have an older half-sister who's like 18 years older than me, my father's daughter, she's not mixed. And um, I just learned several years ago from her, I was asking her, she she grew up with my dad. So she knows much more about him, his family, the whole history. And she shares that with me. And so one day I asked her about, did, they, did she know where his relatives were? Did they have family reunions? And she said, yeah, they have family reunions, you know. And I said, well, have you ever gone? I think she maybe she's gone to one or she knew about him. And I said, "Well, I want to go." And she just looked at me and started laughing. And the joke in my family and among some of my friends is, you know, you can take me places, but if I start talking, we're in trouble. Because once I start talking, I'm not quite so ambiguous. So, um, I mean, I grew up with that. My mother would be like, "Look, this is just five minutes, okay?" Anyway, so sometimes we just have to slide through without, you know, all the fireworks. So. But I learned that um, my, da- my dad, who was copper toned, he wasn't light skinned, he was beautiful, rich copper and some of it, but um, that most of the people in his family passed. And apparently, according to my sister, still do, always have. So when I asked to go to reunion, she said, I can't take you to a reunion. I said, why? She said, they all pass. Wow. So I don't know the details of these people. I think they're in Iowa. He was born in Des Moines, grew up in Minneapolis, where my mother was. Um, but apparently, meant yes. And so when you look, and and he had cousins, and at least one of his cousins could pass, right? And so and when you think about, he's growing up in the 1920s and 30s, living in the 40s and 50s. And then you know my brother and I come along. But yes, I would say probably envy. But I would also, I'm less judgmental and critical of him now. A, you pointed out very wisely and perceptively, the, in the context of the times, most people, I mean, there are a lot of people who didn't pass, but there were diff, also different levels of passing. You know, not everybody was on the, the 100% imitation of life vibe. Some people passed as a practical measure, but they were clearly Black identified. Their loyalty was to the Black community, but they could Get into more spaces, make more money, whatever, get more opportunities, and then they go back to the black folks, and you know, at you know after work or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, it's it's it's. But yes, I think that I think that his life was made harder because he wasn't light skinned and he couldn't pass. Absolutely, and I'm, you know, as an adult and someone who's much more cognizant of these things, I'm not as harshly judgmental and critical of him now as I was then
0: no it's completely understandable um my mother's favorite movie is imitation of life and i mean like when you said that like we were reading that section about your dad that's what it made me think of that um and just that in that time and not even if you wanted to be with the black people and, you, and that was your, where your allegiance lied it was an easier life if you could pass and it, so it's understandable why so many people did uh i the book by Nella Larson, Quicksand and Passing, the two different stories. And, and one of them, there's the, the parlor conversation where, where the husband's joking, hey, if you get any darker, I'm gonna have to, have to wonder about wonder about you. And his like pet name for her was Little Nig. And it was like, that's not cute. <laughs> right. but, she, right. but she was passing, the woman was passing. And so she had to go along with the joke because that was the life that she chose. And then her husband was white. But yeah. So what are the stereotypes that you hate about being biracial? Because you you mentioned this in earlier that this was not your memoir is not a story of a tragic mulatto and that. It's about breaking the white supremacist narrative. So what are some of the stereotypes that you hate that come with being biracial? Thank you for asking.
1: Um the stereotypes that i hate because they they're so limiting and damaging like all stereotypes they have roots they have roots in truth okay i mean it, you know like all stereotypes there are roots in truth right um in this case in and we're talking really about being mostly black white first generation biracial Okay, because there's lots of different multiracial is much more expansive and diverse than that. But the tragic mulatto comes out of enslavement, comes out of highly, you know, you're highly identity policed from birth on because you have to. You're either you're either, you know, for a few centuries, you're either a slave or you're not. There isn't like a, a lovely little middle ground. There's not a meadow you can go off and live in. where where you're escaping that binary. So the binary is really there. The binary that we know is based on white supremacy and anti-Blackness. And that's the binary that formed and fuels this whole country and still does. So I think that's important for context. So the stereotypes that come out of that and that we're just now starting to be able to address, um, number one is the tragedy, the tragic mulatto. The tragic mulatto is that I am confused about myself. And that I'm rejected by everybody. I'm too white to be black. I'm too black to be white. And that, that, that there is an inherent tragedy in my existence and in my life. So, again, there are people who experience those things to this day and are very eloquent about expressing them. So, I don't want to erase that or minimize that. However, to what the problem is that we've been limited to. The danger of what, and um, Chimamanda Ngozi and DJ famously introduced us to, the danger of that single story. We've been limited to that. So everybody assumes, people walk up to me and go, so you're confused. I'm like, no, I'm good. You, I'm ambiguous looking, so you might be confused, which I can understand, because if I met me, I would be confused about what that person was. But I'm really, I've always known, this is what I am. I so with the confused, I've never been rejected. Okay. But many people have many people who look blacker than I do have been rejected by black people, you know? um, And I think usually it's rejection from black people, or if we're another mixture the people of color, that is the hardest. And usually often that is the hardest. I mean, I I don't know that everybody kind of expects it from white people, but I think many of us, you know, white people living in whiteness, yeah, that's their narrative, right? You're not pure. You're not, you're not, you can't be there. But um, so I think that the, the tragedy that we're all suffering, that we're miserable, and that we're kind of dysfunctional. I think there's a sense that we're kind of socially dysfunctional. That's, those are the main stereotypes that I would like to challenge. Like I said, even though though, though there are aspects of those that are reality for some people, I think that what's missing I mean, Akeisha is the context that the tragedy, confusion, rejection, pain is all due to anti-Black racism, ultimately anti-Black racism, and then, of course, other forms of racism towards other people of color that emanate from that. But I think that I'm always trying to pull back people to that context, because that context, I can't speak for other countries. But that context defines this country and every aspect of life in this country for everybody who's touched by it. And so I believe, like you said, it's a white supremacist narrative. And, you know, we all have internalized white supremacist narrative. Come on. You know, we all have to reach inside and do the weeding, you know, and get, get the swamp out of there. But And we're all impacted by it, which is part of the, the duality of our consciousness and, and all of that. But I think that, you know, to say, to just assume that everybody's miserable, the tragedy is you're not white. Uh, again, imitation of life. The tragedy is you're not white. You, even if you look like you're white, there's, and you know, like, I hated like books, movies, the title, like the human stain. Right. Mm-hmm. But what is it? That's blackness. So the tragedy is that everybody's really talking about is that you're not white. And that's
0: what I want to push back against. In the excerpt that you read, um, you talk about the boys on the bus and how they were saying that, you know, they'd rather be with white girls than Black girls because Black girls don't talk back and all this stuff. And that thinking still persists to this day. I thought it was crazy that they were saying this and you're just now being bused to integrated schools. And now here we are years later. And that's still a thing. I want to ask about, though, you grew up in Seattle and Washington State has always had some kind of crazy racial stuff always going on. So, like, what was that like for you growing up in Seattle, mixed race, you're living with your mom who is Jewish and just that environment? What, like, What were the politics there of the time?
1: Great question. You are very good. Um, So Washington State and Seattle have very interesting racial politics, which is one of the reasons I left there in 1986 and have been on the East Coast. Not that any place is perfect, not that any place is less racist or not racist. I'm a big subscriber to Malcolm X's wisdom that when it comes to anti-Black racism, South of Canada is South. And now, as we know, Canada is not exempt either. But- So I don't subscribe to any part of the country as you know, exempt or anything like that. Seattle, 1950s. I didn't know that Seattle had de facto segregation. I didn't know that Seattle had redlining. Okay. I didn't know a lot of these things in an informed kind of way until I started researching for my memoir. Because the journalist, the journalist part of me wanted to provide some context and be factual and accurate. I was like, oh, it's so like a lot of places in the North and especially the West Coast of the Pacific Northwest, which is an intersection of the North and the West Coast, you have this kind of faux progressive uh, liberalism, right? White liberalism that presents as not racist, that presents as softer, gentler, kinder, better, smarter, more evolved, and it's not. But Growing up, if you don't know that, if, if nobody's pointing that out to you, you you can get blindsided and, and internalize those micro and macro aggressions because nobody's providing, con- that. you know, if you don't have context. A lot of mixed kids, um, especially if the non-white parent isn't part of their lives growing up, my father wasn't, um, or don't have a certain level of political consciousness, aren't given those contextual tools to help analyze and understand and navigate these environments that are so racist. So that's one thing. So Seattle had on the plus side, and I'm talking 1954, right? 13 years before Loving versus Virginia was was legal, but interracial marriage was not illegal in Seattle. There were attempts, Washington State, Seattle, there were attempts to make it so, but they never quite made it through, right? And so, a lot of people who wanted to marry interracially went to Seattle, West Coast in general, Seattle, specifically. In fact, Quincy Jones taught writes and talks about this. Um, he, he grew up part, partially in Seattle, He was from Chicago, spent his older years growing up in Seattle. And so where I lived was the central district. the central district before it was gentrified. doesn't you know it's not the same now. But the central district was where black people, and Asian people, and then went southward a bit, could live, okay, redlining. And the same for interracial families, many interracial families. Okay, so we lived in the Central District. And um, the good news is that our neighborhood working class was very black with lots of mixed families. That's a good news. So growing up where I grew up, when I grew up, how I grew up in Seattle was really great as a mixed kid. It wasn't so great as a black woman who's black identified. (laughs) So I moved to the East coast, moved to Atlanta. Right. Um, And so the racial politics, like I said that liberal progressive smile facade, you know, well, we're not, we're better. We're so much, even now they'll, oh, that's the South. Oh, that's the South. Oh, that's, you You know, and I, I always push back against Northerners bashing the South. I'm like, look, I chose to live here twice. And, you know, I happen to prefer my racism on the table, Southern fried, you know, up front, up, up front, maybe hit me over the head with, it. I'm good. You know, cause that other stuff is insidious and less healthy, but You know, people have different preferences. So the racial politics of the time, very colorist. Um, I don't know any more colors than any other place different than Atlanta. But any place where there's a lot of people of color, there's colorism. Colorism isn't just perpetrated by the white folks, and we know that. So there what happens is that the migration patterns, not my family, but the migration patterns of many Black people when I was growing up in Seattle were from Louisiana. So you had Creoles, and you had not all, but some Creoles who were very committed to keeping that melanin minimal in the babies. <laughs> you know? So I grew up with people like that. I don't. I'm not part of that group, but I became familiar with that pretty young. And so I was like, okay, that's all righty then. That seems to be their thing, you know. In general, it was a generalization, but it was clearly, you know, prevalent. So Seattle's racial politics. What made me leave Seattle, Nikisha, was that. Um, and it isn't completely gone now. I think it's somewhat better. Is that the black many people, not everybody, but many people in the black community were very conditioned there. There's a conditioning there to negate or backburner blackness in favor of multi-ethnic multiculturalism. This is we're talking from the 60s, 70s on. Okay. So I left in 1986. I was an adult. Uh, I just couldn't deal with it anymore. I was like, I just want to, can Black people just do something Black? Like, he wouldn't even want to call things Black all the time. Sometimes, yes. But there was, a, there was a real tension going on. There was a real back and forth going on about, well, let's do this Black thing. Well, we got to be inclusive. I'm like, nobody else is, you know, the, everybody, every other group of color has something, an institution or something that is Native American, that is Chicano, that is Asian American, that is Pacific Islander, okay? That is specifically that, a cultural institution or something. And so that's something. And so when I have to tell you, when Rachel Dolezal came on the scene and I heard she was from Washington state, people were like, how could she get away? I said, oh, he's from Washington state. I completely can see how she got away with it. And I think, that's. I mean, I just had to laugh. I wasn't even upset. I was like, I don't know where else she could have gotten away with it. But Washington State. There's an erasure of visible, tangible, focused blackness that is very prevalent. It's not. You know, it, there there are exceptions. There are wonderful, wonderful, significant exceptions to that. But that is the atmosphere that you're fighting.
0: I wanted to ask you about Rachel yeah. you know Dolezal, but I thought that would be like um, too stereotypical of Washington State because, like, you she's can, probably well, the you most. You can ask me
1: about. You can ask me about. Me well, before. no, you
0: you you've already answered the question, but I want to know because you say there's a, a an erasure of blackness even within the black community there. So then, how do you come out to be this self proclaimed Black Power flower child? That's very specific.
1: <coughs> Yeah, it is. Um, okay. That good question. Good question. So, and I really credit, especially the older I get, the more I am able to look at it from this perspective because, you know, I'm I'm an elder and I've written a memoir about it. So I've had to really think about it a lot, and ask myself all those questions, uh, my ancestors. But I think that at a formative age, and this is detailed in the memoir, um, Through my girl, one of my girlfriends, I was introduced to the Black Panther Party for self-defense. And this was very random. I mean, if you want to look at it on the surface, very random. Um, She was, we were bored one summer and she was, she was like, let's go hang out with my cousins. I didn't know anything about these cousins. I'd never heard of the Black Panther Party, um, 1968. And I said, okay, you know, you're, This is back when we just ran the streets, basically. And I was like, okay, cool. Let's go see your cousins, whatever that means. And we go to this. It was a storefront. And I was like, what is this? And she just, just, you know. And and we walk in, and it's the fairly newly formed headquarters of the Black Panther Party. It was the first chapter formed outside of the state of California. The young men, um, Elmer and Aaron Dixon and their brother Michael, who formed it, were in high school. They were very young. Um, just all super brilliant and very well organized. They had medical clinics. They had, you know, they had the the breakfast program. They fed hungry families, They did sickle cell testing. They did all kinds of things. I mean, these were kids. I want to emphasize that. But at the time they just were somewhat older than us. And, and so they let us hang around because my friend was their cousin, I guess. And, um, but you didn't hang around aimlessly you were put to work. So we were putting food into bags for the for, for the hungry families. And we also, and I believe this was a, a real privilege. Um, we were able to sit in on what were called their, they call their political education sessions. And we were really, I put it in my book, they talked to us and treated, listened to us and treated us like adults. They gave us books to read, like the Red Book by Mao Zedong and you know things like that. And we had to read them and come back and discuss them with some intelligence. and, So I tell people I was politically raised by the Black Panther Party of Seattle and the Dixon brothers at a formative age. Like in my mind, this was better than school. And why couldn't school be like this? That's when I became very disingenuous school because I'd experienced something that worked better for me. Like, this is relevant. This is helping me understand this world that I'm navigating, you know, and it was giving me political context, international context, activism. You didn't have to just be frustrated or angry or crying in your bedroom or cursing under your breath. You could build a fully functioning medical clinic while you were a teenager. You could feed hundreds of hungry families. You know, I mean, things like that, which at the time didn't seem the least bit remarkable. They didn't seem at all remarkable. And I think there's magic and power in the fact that they didn't seem remarkable. They, to my, in my mind, that's just what you did. You talk to young people and you engage them like they were intelligent and conscious, and you you shared information and you listened to them and so and you respected them. I also write in the book that these were the, some of the first young men I was around who were predatory, in terms of a you know a young girl's budding body. That was something else you were trying to navigate, right, at school and at home and in the community, and that stuff that really, really, really was a big deal for me. And that really stuck out. And and so I just was in a, you know, hero worship mode, but I still kind of am for them because they're really outstanding individuals. So the Black Panther Party at the same time, you know, the hippie movement, left coast boomer, come on, you know, so my, my high school friends kind of would joke, he say, you're this black power flower child. And I did, you know, we used to like, so picture me in my bell-bottom jeans and my army coat and, (laughs) And um, all my long, wild hair. And we used to draw with magic markers on our jeans. I know that hasn't stopped. And on one leg, I'd do a peace sign. On the other end, I'd write Black Power in those bubbly 1960s letters, right? So that's where they were like, oh, you're this Black Power flower child. But that really is a great description of me to this day.
0: That is awesome. I'm going to leave that there. I want to do a quick speed round before we um, go to the last question, because we've been talking forever and the conversation is amazing. So for the speed round, what is your favorite book? Right now, A Born a Crime by Trevor Noah. Who is your favorite author? One. many as you like. My favorite author, <laughs> Anjusake Shange. What is your favorite movie? Color Purple. And what is your favorite song? Um, Sparkling in the Sand by Tower of Power. You say that you are a jazz baby. So Miles Davis, John Coltrane, or Charlie Parker? Coltrane. Um, And as a self-proclaimed Queen Sugar Superfan, which is getting ready to come back, who is your favorite character? God, can I, a favorite character on by? Do you watch the show Mixedish? No, <gasps> really. <laughs>
1: that was my last question. I just knew that you were going to. Yeah. Can I explain real quick? Can I explain in sixty seconds? Go ahead. I am really glad that Mixedish is out there and that it exists. I don't watch it because I've been frustrated with, and and this has nothing to do with Kenya Barris. Tracy Ellis Ross or the show or shows, blackish and mixish. I love blackish, I love grownish. I'm looking forward to oldish, by the way. Um but mix but mixish is just frustrating, and there's a reason because I've never been fr- I was never happy with Rainbow's character. I didn't feel like she was, you know, my kind of militant mixed woman, like, you know, when the when the mother in law Jennifer Lewis would kind of insult her. I was like, you gotta stand up to her, so this is me, though, wanting her to be more like me. So it's very subjective. I understand it. So mixed just really goes around Rainbow. And when I tried to watch it, and I'm being subjective here and owning my biases and my annoyances, I was annoyed by the mother, the Black mother of these mixed children who, and I know this is a sitcom, and I know it's Kenny Bears. So I'm not looking for a documentary here. But it just didn't, it seemed to me like the Black mother you know, the Black mother, the white father, and then of course the Black mother's sister who brings the blackness in. that the black mother herself did not seem to know anything about how to do her kid's hair. She didn't she's a beautiful dark-skinned woman who didn't seem to be tuned into colorism. She didn't really seem to understand blackness. She came off as very Kumbaya and needed the sister-in-law. And again, this is a sitcom, so I'm not you know, but I just was like, okay, I get it. this has value for some people, but it's going to get on my nerves. But the beauty of this, I just want to say, Nikisha, real quick, is everybody needs representation. And I think that it's a mistake to think that everybody black is going to like every black product out there. Everybody Asian is going to like every Asian product. Everybody Latinx is going to write every Latinx product. I think we need to learn to support them, champion them, say, yay, they're here, not really my cup of tea. Or, like I like to do, use it to motivate me to write my version.
0: Well then (laughs) I look forward to your version for whenever that comes out, TV, film, book. I'm here for it.
1: Thank you.
0: So my last question, you've done a lot. I mean, you've written a lot. You've been writing since you were seven. You've been publishing forever. It's a lot of words on ink, on paper. Um, When you're dead and gone, what would you like someone to write about your legacy? That is a great question. Um, When I am dead and gone, what I would like someone to
1: write about my legacy is that my work opened minds, opened eyes, and maybe opened hearts, and ultimately doors for us to understand each other and different kinds of people in a way that helps us to create a more equitable and just society.
0: That's beautiful. Thank you, Teresa, for being here on Black & Published today.
1: Nikisha, you are so incredibly awesome. Oh my gosh, I am overwhelmed. This is amazing. Oh, thank
0: you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you to all of your listeners, viewers. Um, Just an incredible pleasure and honor to be here. And can I just say that you are one of the best interviewers I know of. And I'm going to be shouting you out to lots of people, if that's
0: okay. That's fine. I'm going to stop the recording because now I'm getting embarrassed, but thank you. Big thank you to Teresa Stovall for being here on Black & Published today. Make sure you check out Teresa's book, Swirl Girl, Coming of Race in the USA. And if you're not following her on the socials, follow her at Teresa Talks on Twitter and Instagram. And Teresa Stovall, author on Facebook. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black & Published, which I know you do, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. And while you're there, please leave us a rating, a review. Let us know who you want to hear on the show. Just give us your thoughts. You can also follow Black & Published at Black & Published on Instagram and Twitter at BLK & Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show for the week. I'll holla at y'all next time. Peace. <laughs>